Welcome to the On Centerline podcast, a show where we discuss the trials and tribulations of learning to fly from both the student and flight instructor perspectives. We feature real aviators in all different chapters of their careers, talking about the things we all deal with, but rarely discuss. So join us as we take on the challenges, hardships, and celebrations that pave the runway to being a professional aviator as we strive to stay on centerline. Hey everybody, welcome back. You know, I uh, love doing these podcasts and one of the best things about it that uh, you don't really think about until you're in the middle of doing it is how much it teaches me. And it's kind of the same thing, you know, whenever you're teaching something, whenever you teach something, we always say teaching something is the best way to learn something. And so through doing this podcast and this ACS review, it's really forced me to go back through all the source materials and e- either remind myself of things that I've forgotten or gotten rusty on or uh, gain just a new understanding of things in general. And certainly weather is one of those topics that's just so in-depth and so complex um, that going through this uh, these couple episodes of weather, I've definitely gotten a new appreciation for certain things. As an example, you know, we always talk about our temperature lapse rates and it was always confusing to me as a student and and even sometimes to this day to keep track of all the different types of lapse rates. We have our environmental lapse rate and then our dry adiabatic lapse rate and our wet or moist adiabatic lapse rate. And it's like you can't keep track of all the numbers and, you know, there you got to make sure that you're talking about the right units of measurement. Usually in aviation, we refer to them every thousand feet, but oftentimes you'll see them referred to as every thousand meters or every kilometer. And of course, they're going to be different different numbers depending on how high you're going. So, you know, and we've got, of course, you got differences between Celsius and Fahrenheit, and it can be hard to keep track of. So let me just kind of lay it out for you. Maybe you're having a hard time remembering or understanding this stuff. And I just want to kind of give you the just the basic surface level kind of breakdown to help you understand these different lapse rates, hopefully, because these lapse rates are used when we're talking about atmospheric stability and temperature inversions and things like that. So first we have the environmental lapse rate. And when we're talking about the environmental lapse rate, we're just talking about the standard air in the atmosphere that is not independent. It is just the kind of baseline air of the atmosphere in the environment. So our environmental lapse rate, if we're talking about how the temperature decreases every thousand feet, it goes down about two degrees Celsius per thousand feet. Then we have the dry adiabatic lapse rate. And the dry adiabatic lapse rate is basically when we're talking about air that is not saturated. So basically, if we're talking about a parcel of air that is not a cloud, that is not saturated or super saturated, that's considered dry. And so if you can't see anything in the parcel of air, it's probably dry. And that dry adiabatic lapse rate happens at three degrees per thousand feet. 
three degrees Celsius per thousand feet. And then we get into the wet adiabatic lapse rate. This is when the air is saturated. So it'd be if the if you were looking at a cloud, what the lapse rate and the temperature inside the cloud is, because the cloud is saturated and has moisture, it releases heat at a slower rate. Therefore, the lapse rate is less. And it ranges, it's not a fixed figure, but it ranges from about one and a half degrees Celsius to as high as three degrees Celsius. So I'm not going to get any more into to that stuff right now. Um, it's a good topic for you to sit down with your CFI and talk about or watch some YouTube videos about. But if you just can understand the differences between those three different types of lapse rates, the environmental, which is kind of our standard, the dry adiabatic, which is if it's not a cloud, <laughs> And then the wet adiabatic lapse rate, which is basically if it is a cloud, um, how the temperature changes as the air rises. Anyway, that was a little bit of a side note, but uh, that was something I always struggled with. And I wanted to maybe help you understand it a little bit more than I ever did when I was uh, going through my portion of my private pilot uh, journey. But today we're actually getting started again with part two of our weather information in the private pilot ACS. And today we're picking up where we left off, which was with line item F, Foxtrot, and that is clouds. So what do we need to know as far as clouds? Well, like I mentioned earlier, clouds are fantastic things because they are literally your view your window into what is happening in the atmosphere at any given time and can give you a lot of information about what to expect if you were to choose to go fly that day. I'm going to read again just like I have been doing straight from the aviation weather handbook and uh, this is part 12 in the aviation weather handbook and in the introduction right here it says a cloud is a visible aggregate of minute water droplets and or ice particles in the atmosphere above the earth's surface. Okay and that's important because it says you know fog differs from clouds only in that fog actually touches the earth's surface. So if a cloud is touching the Earth's surface, it's fog. And if it's not touching, then it's a cloud. But here in the uh, third paragraph, or, or just the third sentence, it goes on to say exactly what I was just talking about. Clouds are like signposts in the sky that provide information on air motion, stability, and moisture. Clouds help pilots visualize weather conditions and potential weather hazards. So... Clouds are definitely something you want to get real familiar with. And as I usually say, the more interesting and cool a cloud looks, the more you don't want to fly through it. <laughs> but it's a great day to go out and take some photos, especially at sunset when you get that nice golden hour light reflecting off the clouds. But really, we want to be flying through boring clouds, boring, flat, straight uh, featureless clouds. Those are the types we generally want to be flying through if we had a choice. So the more interesting and cool a cloud looks, the more you want to avoid it. But when it comes to your private pilot check ride, when, and uh, when we're talking about clouds, really, you just want to know kind of the basics. You want to know the families of clouds. And the families of clouds include low clouds, middle clouds, and high clouds. And then we've got clouds with extensive vertical development. 
Okay, those are the family of clouds. And then you want to know the types of clouds. So basically, there's three main types and then kind of a fourth subtype kind of thing where we have our stratus clouds, our cumulus clouds, and our cirrus clouds. And then we have nimboform clouds. And nimbus, I'll just read again straight from the Aviation Weather Handbook, nimbus comes from the Latin word meaning rain. So anytime you hear the prefix or suffix nimbus or nimbo attached to any type of cloud, that simply means that it's a rain cloud. Predominantly, we talk about cumulonimbus. And of course, cumulonimbus are storm clouds. They are cumulus clouds with rain. And those are the types that, in the right circumstances, can grow into some pretty severe thunderstorms. But you can also have nimbostratus clouds. And uh, those are very common here in the Pacific Northwest. And so let's just talk about the different types of clouds. Stratus uh, is Latin for layer or blanket. And uh, that's what stratus clouds look like. They just look like a flat blanket of clouds. They're pretty featureless and uh, they don't develop vertically much. Cumulus clouds are the ones that look like white fluffy cotton balls and they uh, generally happen when the atmosphere might be a little less stable and have some more vertical development. That's what causes them to look like those fluffy cotton balls is the vertical motion or the thermal uplift of air that's taking place in the atmosphere. And then we have cirrus clouds and uh, cirrus clouds are great to see. We love seeing cirrus clouds. Cirrus clouds generally are very high in the atmosphere and they are so high that they are usually composed of ice crystals, okay? Cirrus clouds are made of ice crystals and they are usually found uh, above 20,000 feet. So cirrus clouds, uh, they, they usually occur in fair weather and uh, point in the direction of air movement at their elevation. So a lot uh, that you can see of kind of winds aloft if you're looking at the direction of those cirrus clouds. But anytime we have cirrus clouds, it's generally going to be a very nice day and uh, hopefully a nice day to fly. So really, that's all we need to kind of know, at least in my opinion, when it comes to your private pilot checkride. Know the types of clouds, cirrus, cumulus, stratus, what causes them, what signs uh, that they, they give you as far as the stability of the atmosphere and what you might expect. Um, and then know the families of clouds, just low, middle, high. Um, you don't really need to know things like alto or anything like that. Alto, uh, when we have the suff or the prefix alto, that's just talking about middle level clouds and, and the altitude at which they're at. But that is what we want to know when it comes to clouds for our private pilot checkride. All right, moving on to our next line item. And our next line item is turbulence. All right. So nobody likes turbulence. I mean, sometimes it can be fun, especially if you're a fan of uh, roller coasters. Or you kind of like something a little more exciting than just a boring, straight and level, smooth plane ride. But in general, nobody really likes turbulence. And so what we want to know for our private pilot check ride is, first of all, the types of reports, the weather reports that you would look at or that you'd uh, access in order to see what types of turbulence might be present during your time of flight. Of course, these would be things like air mats, sig mats, and 
pilot reports more than anything else, right? Those pilot reports are always going to be the most accurate indication of what the conditions are like in any given moment. You're going to want to know the categories of turbulence. These would be light, moderate, severe, and extreme. And you're going to want to know kind of generally what those mean. Like what does it mean to be light turbulence versus uh, moderate or severe turbulence? How would you know which one to report if you are experiencing turbulence? Okay. And then uh, you're going to want to know also, especially when it comes to pilot reports, the fact that moderate turbulence for a 737 does not equal moderate turbulence for you in your Cessna 172 or Piper 140, all right? So when we're looking at these pilot reports uh, and these indications, we want to make sure we are comparing apples to apples and understanding that uh, obviously the type of plane we're flying is going to largely determine how much of that turbulence you feel and what type of effect it will have on you um, in your plane. All right, moving on from turbulence, our next line item is thunderstorms and microbursts. So thunderstorms, there is probably no, I won't say no, there's probably few other weather phenomena that is more dangerous than a thunderstorm. So we all know that we want to avoid thunderstorms. And you probably have read that you want to avoid those thunderstorms by at least 20 miles. Keep in mind that that 20 mile radius is a minimum. And ideally, if we can avoid it even further, that's always a best practice. And then, of course, keep in mind that if you have a line of thunderstorms and you are trying to shoot a gap between them, you know, it's not a 20 mile gap you need at that point. If you got two storms on either side, you need at least a 40 mile gap so that you can maintain 20 miles from each one. We want to know the ingredients necessary to create a thunderstorm. Those ingredients are moisture, a source of lift or vertical movement, and unstable atmospheric conditions. Moisture, vertical movement, unstable atmospheric conditions. You also want to know the life cycle of a thunderstorm. What are the three stages of a thunderstorm? So our building stage or our initial stage is the cumulus stage. The second stage is our mature stage. And then our final stage is our dissipating stage, which is predominantly marked by rain or precipitation. So those are kind of the main things we want to know in regards to thunderstorms, how to avoid them, what the life cycle is like, and what are the ingredients necessary. Because if you know the ingredients necessary and you're doing a weather briefing and you see kind of those ingredients present, that'll give you a better idea of whether or not you could expect to see thunderstorms out there. And then microbursts. Microbursts, a very, very dangerous weather phenomena that is oftentimes associated or can be associated with thunderstorms. Um, But basically, these are huge downdrafts caused by a release of uh, precipitation. Um, You can see videos of these on YouTube where you just basically see a cloud that falls to the ground. 
and it just literally looks like the ground, the, the cloud disintegrates from the air and falls straight down to the ground. And these microbursts can uh, last up to usually, you know, about 15 minutes at times, but they can cause downdrafts as strong as 60 miles per hour or 6,000 feet per minute. And there's just no way for most aircraft that you're going to be able to outclimb a microburst. So again, understanding what a microburst is, uh, the conditions in which you might find it and how to avoid it, knowing what to do if you were caught in a microburst is a good idea, but uh, avoidance is always key. And, you know, there's not much you can do if you find yourself caught in a microburst, basically, If you did, you're going to go full power. You're going to pitch for VX and you're going to hold on to your butts (laughs) because that's about all you can do. Um, But uh, yeah, avoidance is definitely key with microbursts as well as thunderstorms. So uh, just be familiar with those avoidance techniques and how to identify conditions that might contain microbursts. All right, moving on, our next line item is icing and freezing level information. So icing, another very dangerous weather phenomena that we deal with. And knowing the types of icing, of course, is something you're going to want to be familiar with. This comes in more into play when we get into your instrument rating, but uh, it doesn't hurt to know them now. Basically, we have three types of icing. And we're talking about airframe icing here. However, if you're flying an aircraft with a carbureted engine, you will want to be familiar with carburetor ice, how to identify it, how to avoid it, and how to cure it if you did find yourself um, building it up. But uh, as far as airframe icing goes, we have three different types, and those are clear icing, rime icing, and mixed icing, which is just a mixture of the two. Don't ask me why they consider mixing of the two a third separate category, but they do. But rhyme and clear are kind of the two main types. So you'll want to know those types. You'll want to know the signs of in-flight airframe icing. Where would you see indications of icing first on your airframe? What types of characteristics might be present if you were building airframe icing? What would the controls feel like? What would the radios sound like? All right. A lot of people uh, don't really think about the fact that your antennas are oftentimes uh, some of the pieces of the airframe that will start accumulating icing first. And if you find yourself kind of hearing a bunch of static on the radio out of nowhere, That's a good sign that you might be getting ice on your antenna uh, and one of the first indications. So you want to know those signs. And then, of course, you want to know what you would do if you suspected that you had airframe icing. You also want to know what you would not do if you suspected airframe icing. Things not to do would be things like using your autopilot, changing configuration of your plane, like using flaps or even taking flaps out, you would not want to be doing any type of configuration change um, and you'd want to be flying by hand. So those are all things, again, that are really going to come into play more when you get to your instrument rating. As a basic VFR pilot, 
you should really never find yourself in a condition where you are getting airframe icing. Um, but to that end, if you were going to get yourself into an icing condition as a VFR pilot, that type of icing would most likely be a situation of freezing rain or SLDs, as we call it, super cool, large droplets. This is the, in my opinion, at least the most dangerous type of icing because it is basically super cooled water that doesn't freeze until it hits your aircraft. As soon as it hits the aircraft, it turns to ice instantly and it can accumulate extremely fast in a matter of seconds and it can be very hard to get out of. But basically that's the type of ice that as a VFR only pilot you would probably be most at risk for because you wouldn't need to be flying in a cloud to experience it. It would become rain. You'll also want to know the reports to look at. Where can you find information like on aviationweather.gov for the forecasts? for icing and for super cool large droplets. They have forecasts for those things and can tell you the probability and the severity of it in your area. And just like with turbulence, you'll want to know the categories of icing. How would you report icing if you were experiencing it? We talked about the types of icing, the rhyme, the clear, and the mixed. And then the severity categories would be trace, light, moderate, or severe. Okay. Again, as a VFR only pilot, you should never find yourself in a situation where you're remotely getting airframe icing. Ideally, as even an instrument rated pilot, you would not find yourself in that situation. But that's basically all you need to know. And uh, that should definitely get you through the check ride as far as icing is concerned. All right, moving on. Our next line item is fog slash mist. So, Fog is something that we are very familiar with up here in the Pacific Northwest. As a matter of fact, these past few days, I'm recording this on Christmas Eve. By the way, Merry Christmas, everybody. Um, but these past few days here have been completely fogged in. Uh, low IFR, foggy from morning to night all the way through. And uh, so there hasn't been much flying these past few days. So you want to know the types of fog, at least the main types. Those would be things like advection fog, upslope fog, radiation fog, steam fog, precipitation fog, okay? And if you live in an area that commonly gets fog, at least through certain parts of the year, you want to know what type of fog is this that's in my area, generally. Here in the Northwest, if you're on the coast, of course, you have advection fog but here in the valley we often experience radiation fog so you want to know the types of fog because knowing those types of fog knowing what causes them can help you in your weather planning to know whether or not you might encounter fog during your flight now you'll probably want to know the difference between fog and mist fog is of course a cloud that is touching the ground Whereas mist, you know, mist is water that's suspended in the air as well, but fog is much denser than mist and uh, will reduce visibility even more. Uh, mist is, you know, water droplets, but they're kind of less merging 
Um, and so the, the mist is less dense. It's quicker to dissipate with wind or temperature or anything like that. Uh, and mist can be formed due to abrupt temperature changes or from evaporation or condensation. So basically, fog is a cloud. Mist is not a cloud. Fog is much denser and uh, therefore has a greater effect on visibility than mist. All right, moving on to our next line item, we have frost. So again, something that's very common here in the Pacific Northwest, especially this time of year, frost is something that we definitely want to avoid. The best way to avoid it is to keep your airplane in a nice warm hangar, but that's not always possible. And you might go out for an early morning flight and find a nice, just slick layer of frost over uh, the wings of your airplane and over the whole body. So the question, of course, is, well, you know, it's a small layer. Is it, can we really not fly with frost on the airframe? Well, understand that frost is a form of airframe icing. It is ice on the airframe. And just like with uh, other airframe icing, your rime icing and your clear ice, it has the same negative effects that any airframe icing does, which is another thing I don't know if I mentioned earlier when it comes to icing. You want to know the negative effects that ice has on your airplane. Basically, it increases weight and reduces lift. The two things that you absolutely don't want to have happen in an airplane. All right. So even the smallest layer of frost can disrupt the air over your airframe, over the wings, and cause a loss of lift and actually weigh quite a bit, quite a bit more than you might be thinking. All right. So any amount of frost is not a good amount of frost. You would never want to go take off with frost on the aircraft. So the best thing to do is to think ahead. If you know you're going to be flying early in the morning on a very cold, kind of clear night, uh, you'll want to try to get that airplane in a hangar if you can. If you can't, make sure you get to the airport in time to defrost the plane. Now, you don't necessarily want to use scrapers all the time um, like you do on a car, but assuming that you are flying after the sun rises, getting that airplane into the sunlight as soon as possible will help melt that frost off. And there's some other de-icing and defrosting products out there that you could use to uh, wipe down the plane and, and help the process along. Assuming the air temperature itself is above freezing, uh, even just spraying the airplane down uh, with some water can help melt that frost away and clean off your airframe. All right, moving on to our next line item. This is L Lima obstructions to visibility, e.g. smoke, haze, volcanic ash, etc., Etc. Etc. So any obstruction to visibility is a bad thing, whether it's fog, mist, smoke, haze, volcanic ash, any of these things. Here in the Pacific Northwest in the summertime on the West Coast, you know, we do get a pretty bad fire season usually. So we're no uh, strangers to smoke. Um, but basically you want to just know, first of all, what these conditions would look like on a METAR or a TAF? Do you know the symbol for smoke or haze on a METAR? Okay, ask yourself that. And if you don't, be sure to look that up and know. And then of course, understand that any obstruction to visibility, if the visibility got low enough, haze, smoke, otherwise, could become instrument 
conditions. It could become IMC. Understand that IMC does not strictly mean you are in clouds. IMC means that you are in instrument meteorological conditions without reference, without visual reference to the horizon. And as soon as you lose visual reference to the horizon, you are technically in IMC conditions. Could even be just a dark night, a perfectly clear VFR dark night without any terrain lighting. You could lose visual reference to the horizon, which would put you in instrument conditions because you don't have visibility. So understanding how to identify these obstructions to visibility in a forecast and then what to do if you were to find yourself in a situation where you were flying through these conditions uh, and how to either get around or get out of them. And this is where being proficient, at least on a basic level, with your instrument flying really comes in handy. All right, last line item in the knowledge section of uh, weather information here talks about flight deck displays of digital weather and aeronautical information. Now, this is going to be very specific and, and uh, customized based on what your aircraft is equipped with. But in general, of course, you want to be familiar with all sources of information and all the tools that you have available to you in your aircraft and so anything pertaining to weather information, you're definitely going to want to be familiar with. Not only knowing what information is available to you and, of course, how to access it, but what are the limitations of that information? If you do have any type of onboard radar, where is that radar coming from? Is it ADS-B weather or is it Sirius XM satellite information? And how often is that information updated in your display? Some of the most common accidents when it comes to weather-related incidents happen because people don't understand how up-to-date the weather is that they're seeing painted on their displays. So you want to understand the lag in radar that's being painted on your GPS or your weather display and understand that that information cannot be taken at face value. So I think that's a good segue to bring us into our risk management portion. And our first line item with risk management says factors involved in making the go slash no go decision and continue slash divert decision to include circumstances that would make diversion prudent. Well, of course, one Weather-related circumstance that would make diversion prudent would be perhaps if you saw a whole line of thunderstorms painted on your radar right in your line of flight. It could be that the weather is not as forecast. Perhaps conditions are deteriorating faster than you expected them to or just were completely different from what was forecasted. Next line item is personal weather minimums. So this is something you really need to sit down with your CFI and talk about because it can be difficult when you don't have a lot of experience to begin with to really understand where your own personal limits are or where they should be. But in general, I like to set personal minimums based off of certain objective figures. And what I mean by that is perhaps something like, uh, you know that your traffic pattern is a thousand feet AGL. So you might say to yourself, okay, 
My personal weather minimum is I'm not going to go fly the traffic pattern unless the ceilings are forecasted to be at least 500 feet above traffic pattern altitude. So 1500 foot ceilings. You might have a minimum altitude you need to fly at or like to fly at for local flights. Let's say it's 3,500 feet. So you might say that you will not do any local flights without the ceilings being at least 1,000 feet above 3,500. So if you're able to use some objective figures to set your own personal minimums, which is not that much different than the way Part 135 and Part 121 operations actually set minimums for things like whether or not they can do an approach, whether or not they can use a certain airport as an alternate or or uh, what their alternate minimums are. That's a, a real good place to start when setting your own personal weather minimums is kind of set some objective figures or figure out what those objective figures are and then say, I'm not going to go fly unless the actual figures are at least XYZ above or below this figure. All right, next line item, hazardous weather conditions to include known or forecast icing or turbulence aloft. So again, this kind of can go back to your personal minimums to say what are your own personal minimums for going out in possible icing conditions or turbulence. If there's a PIREP for moderate turbulence, is that going to be okay for you. If there's a pie rep for light rime icing a thousand feet above your planned cruising altitude, is that going to be acceptable to you? Okay, so understanding uh, the hazards associated with these situations, and most importantly, always having a way out. If you say, okay, there's going to, you know, there's turbulence forecast for my route of flight here, and there's a couple reports of even moderate to severe turbulence, but I have this other route that I could take that is not reporting turbulence or or icing conditions. So basically when it comes to icing, turbulence, or any other type of hazardous weather, the one thing you need to always remember is to have a way out. Never put yourself in a position where you are going to be stuck between a rock and a hard place or not be able to get out of that potentially dangerous situation. And a lot of that will come back to your personal minimums. But always give yourself a way out uh, when it comes to flight planning and any type of hazardous weather condition. All right, next uh, line item is the limitations of onboard weather equipment. I'm just going to read all three of these. Onboard weather equipment, aviation weather reports and forecasts, and in-flight weather resources. So, This goes back to kind of what I was talking about when we were talking about your flight deck displays and digital weather uh, information. Knowing that most digital weather information and and onboard weather equipment is not going to give you real-time weather. There's going to be a delay of some sort. Uh, Knowing what the limitations of aviation weather reports and forecasts are. Understanding that weather is not always going to be as forecasts. You cannot take all forecasts at face value. You have to be able and ready to adapt and to uh, pivot as necessary. Um, And that's where always giving yourself that way out, that plan B uh, becomes so critical. All right, guys. So that's going to just about do it here for our weather information. 
The skills that you're expected to demonstrate is to analyze the implications of at least three of the conditions listed up in K3A through K3L, uh, which is all those different types of weather uh, phenomena that we talked about. And using actual weather or weather conditions in a scenario provided by the evaluator and use the actual weather or weather conditions that are in the scenario provided by the evaluator. Then you're supposed to correlate the weather information to make a competent go, no-go decision. All right. So everything we talk about when it comes to weather, it's always about evaluating the information that's presented to you, that's that's available to you. And, and first of all, knowing where to find this information. So knowing where to find the information, what information to look at, how to interpret that information, and then how to use that information to the best of your ability to make a competent go, no-go decision. The examiner is not going to expect you to be a meteorologist. They are not going to expect you to know every single thing about weather. Most meteorologists don't even know everything single thing about weather. When was the last time you saw the, the weatherman be 100% correct all the time? Okay, so there's a lot of guessing that goes into weather and weather forecasts. And it's about using the information that's available and using your knowledge and understanding of the weather to make those guesses as smart as they can be and as accurate as possible while always having a contingency plan at the same time. If you can demonstrate those skills to the examiner, you won't have any problem with this portion of your check ride. All right, guys, thanks so much for spending this time with me today. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We'll have our next episode coming out soon, going over cross-country flight planning, which is the next section of our private pilot ACS. Really appreciate your guys' support, and we'll see you next time on Centerline.